Well, this morning we are concluding our series on the songs of Advent. And so we have one more song that we're going to be looking at. And each week what we have done is looked really briefly at the history of this Christmas hymn that we sing. And then spend most of our time looking at the basis for the song in God's Word. Where does this song spring from? What is it that we are singing scripturally when we sing this particular hymn? So we've looked at, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We looked at the song, What Child Is This? And then last week, we looked at, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This morning, for our last song, we are going to look at, Joy to the World. This is another um, favorite, and it's very rich in theology. The unique thing about this particular Christmas hymn is that it's not really a Christmas hymn. And we'll see that as we go. And it's, it's perfectly appropriate for us to be singing it at Christmas, and sometimes it feels a little awkward if we sing it at another time of year, but it really isn't mostly about Christmas. But it's still a very good Christmas hymn for us to sing. This song is written by Isaac Watts. And uh, he lived toward the end of the 1600s through the middle of the 1700s. He was an English nonconformist minister. He's considered to be the father of English hymnody. He wrote over 600 hymns. He also wrote a lot of educational books, books on geography and astronomy and grammar and philosophy and logic. I've even got his logic textbook used it. It's the right use of reason in the inquiry after truth. He's a very um, broad in his interests, very intelligent person, and that comes across in the way that he writes his hymns. A couple of the ones that you might recognize that he has written would be, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, or O oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. Those are hymns of Isaac Watts. Well, in 1707, he published a book called Hymns and Spiritual Songs. And in the beginning of that book, there was a a short essay that he wrote. It's called A Short Essay Toward the Improvement of Psalmody, or an inquiry into how the Psalms of David ought to be translated into Christian songs. So in his day, the typical thing for churches to do was just to sing psalms. And Watts said, that's a good thing for us to do, but it's not a bad thing if we take the psalms and we translate them into more modern songs for the church to use. And he had in mind something particular he wanted to accomplish with each song or psalm that he did that to. And so let me just read to you one sentence from that little essay. It says, There are also many deficiencies of light and glory which our Lord Jesus and his apostles have supplied in the writings of the New Testament. And with this advantage, I have composed these spiritual songs which are now presented to the world. Now, when he says deficiencies, he doesn't mean that there's something wrong with it. What he's saying is, when you go back to the Old Testament and you read the Psalms, there are parts about those Psalms that are opaque or murky, There are things that we're not really sure if all we had was the Psalms. We wouldn't know for sure what it was that it was talking about. But when we get to what Jesus says and what the apostles write in the New Testament, we can go back and see that those Psalms were speaking about Jesus. So what he wanted to do was go back and take the Psalms, rewrite them in modern English, and to clarify in those songs 
how those psalms pointed to Jesus, how they speak about the gospel. Twelve years later, in 1719, he published the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. And that is, uh, this book is kind of a version of that. It's called The Poetic Interpretation of the Psalms by Isaac Watts. And all this is, as you go through it, is Psalm 40, Psalm 41. It's just psalm after psalm that he took and rewrote in more modern English, or at least modern for his day, and kind of in meter that could be sung more easily. So he adjusted those Old Testament psalms so that you could see more clearly how they referred to Jesus. He had, when he got to Psalm 98, Psalm 98, he had two songs based on that psalm. One of them is called, To Our Almighty Maker God, and the other one is, Joy to the World. So Joy to the World is based on Psalm 98, verses 4 through 9. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. I'd like to read that for us before we listen to the song. Now, as you're turning there, when he talked about Psalm 98 and the two songs that he wrote based on that psalm, here's what he said. He said, In these two hymns, which I have formed out of the 98th psalm, I have fully expressed what I esteem to be the first and chief sense of the Holy Scriptures both in this and in the 96th Psalm, whose conclusions are both alike. So that's basically just an expression of what he said earlier in that essay. He's taking what's there in Psalm 98, and he wants to make very clear the message of Scripture as it's seen through Psalm 98. And the way that that works out is these two songs, one of which is Joy to the World. Let's read Psalm 98, and then we'll listen to Joy to the World. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Hold your place there in Psalm 98 because we'll return to it and let's listen to Joy to the World.
the psalm that it comes from, let's kind of dig in and look at just each verse of this song and see where it comes from in Scripture and what Isaac Watts is communicating in it. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. All right, joy to the world, the Lord is come. In verse 4 of Psalm 98, you see, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Why? Why are we called to do that? Well, you actually don't get to the reason until the last verse. Verse 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. And so Watts is condensing that into one line. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. It's the coming of the Lord that is to bring joy. Now, in Psalm 98, the Lord comes as the king. Look at verse 6. With trumpets and the sound of horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. So he's coming as the king, and he's coming to judge the earth. Now, when the king comes as the judge, he comes to execute justice and righteousness. In Scripture, that's the job description of a king. That's what a king is supposed to do. He executes justice and righteousness in the land. He really doesn't do a whole lot more than that. Um, this gets wrapped up like if you think of our government, we have three branches of government. So we have the legislative which makes the laws, we have the judicial, which kind of applies or interprets the laws, and we have the executive, which executes the laws or carries them out. This is mainly, the role of the king is mainly the executive to execute justice and righteousness. But the king, in scripture, has been gone for a while, so to speak. 
gone from the earth, or at least people have been separated from the king. It's kind of like Jesus' story of the landowner. If you remember that story that Jesus tells, there's a, a farmer and a landowner. He's going to go away into a far country for a long period of time. He leaves some tenants in charge of his land, and so they're supposed to carry things out while he's gone. So he leaves, and then he sends servants to check on them. And the servants come, and the tenants who are there don't want to hear from the servants. And so they, they send them away, and you know, get out of here. And this happens over and over again. And, and Jesus, as he's telling this story, what he's doing is he's telling the story of Israel. Because God is the landowner, and Israel is the tenants, especially the religious leaders who are in charge. And the servants who come with a message from the landowner, those are the prophets. And over and over again, the people of Israel, and particularly the religious leaders, don't listen to the message of the prophets. So, as Jesus tells the story, the landowner eventually sends his own son. And what do the tenants do? They kill the son. Because they say, well, let's get rid of the son and then we can keep the land for ourselves. And of course, Jesus is even right there foretelling what would happen. Now that he, the son of God, has come, they're going to kill him. And so Jesus is telling this story that, that has the idea of the king being, or the, the landowner being gone for a period of time. Similarly here, we have this return or arrival of the king to execute justice and righteousness. So is the psalm talking about Jesus' birth? No, I think primarily it's really talking about Jesus' return, his second coming. Maybe it's both in the sense that when Jesus came the first time and then he ascended into heaven, there's a sense in which the day of the Lord began at that point. The last days began. And so it's, it's kind of being carried out throughout time. But there is coming a day when Jesus will return, and I think that's primarily what this psalm has in view. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. There's nothing in Psalm 98 quite like this line, let every heart prepare him room. This seems to be something that Watts added in, kind of applying the psalm. So make sure that you're ready for when he returns. Are you honoring him as king? There's nothing quite that personal in Psalm 98, but this is also a place where I think the song, Joy to the World, actually does connect to what we celebrate at Christmas because we have as part of the Christmas story that there was no room for him in the inn. And it's almost as if Watts is saying, don't let that be true of you. Make sure that you're ready to receive this king who will be coming to execute justice and righteousness. And then heaven and nature sing kind of returns back to this theme of the whole world receiving him. So verse 1 tells us that the king is coming in judgment, in justice and righteousness, and going to bring a response of joy. Let's take a look then at verse 2. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. 
Now, the, the version that we sing, the recorded version that we sing, says joy to the world again here, but earth is actually a little bit better. This is what Watts had, and he has it there for a reason. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. The song announces joy coming to the earth, but the psalm speaks of the earth making a joyful noise. So make a joyful noise, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the hills sing for joy together. Over and over in Psalm 98, the earth responds with joy to the coming of the King. It's the arrival of the King that is the cause of the joyful response. So why does the arrival of the King cause joy? Especially if he's coming in judgment. It's because he judges in righteousness and equity. Righteousness and justice. And that is good for the earth. It's a good thing when the king comes and makes righteousness and justice the law of the land. When he makes that characterize what's happening on the earth. I have noticed over the last couple of years, I feel like, a movement in evangelicalism that heads kind of towards a Gnostic approach, like what we saw in 1 John. The idea that what we want to hold to is the gospel, which changes men's hearts, and not get involved in a number of other aspects of life on earth. And that's really not a biblical view. When the king comes in justice and righteousness to implement his reign, it has an effect, it has an impact on the whole earth. And so, if that's what the good news, the gospel, does, then we should be living in line with that. He says here, the Savior reigns. Notice what he's doing. The psalm says, verse 6, that the, you're, you're to make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. But here Watts calls him the Savior. He's putting an equal sign between the King and the Savior. He's identifying for you the King of Psalm 98. He's saying, the one who came as the Savior, Jesus, is the King that Psalm 98 is talking about. He's the one who's coming with justice and righteousness. So does he bring that in his first coming or in his second? Well, primarily in his second coming, when he comes to judge. Now, there is a sense in which it's kind of an already and not yet. Right? In the ministry of Jesus, he does things like come into the city of Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he kind of symbolically executes justice. He examines what's going on in the temple and he says this is not good and he executes justice, but it's not a lasting justice. It's just symbolic. But it does let you know what he's going to do when he comes back. And men then should join in the response of praising the Savior King. 
let men their songs employ. So the earth is going to rejoice at the coming of the king. We should join in with that. We should employ our songs in rejoicing in the arrival of the king who brings justice and righteousness. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Here it's the elements of nature that echo the song of heaven. Heaven and nature sing, we saw in verse 1. So heaven sings, the angels praise God, and nature echoes that song. Nature sings as well. In Psalm 98, the sea roars and the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy. So the arrival of the king in judgment, which will make things right on the earth, is good for the earth and it has an impact on the earth. And joy is the right response. The third verse then, it's interesting, this is one that's probably really the heart of the song, but it's also the one that gets left out quite a bit when we sing this song at Christmas. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This idea is based on Psalm 98 verse 9. The Lord comes to judge the earth. And he'll judge the earth. He'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, what does that judgment entail? What's he going to accomplish for the world and for people in that judgment? Well, to understand that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. I have two more passages I'm going to ask you to turn to. Turn to Genesis 3. Currently, the earth has thorns. Now, why does the earth have thorns? Well, Scripture tells us why. Scripture tells us why there are difficulties on the earth. Here in Genesis chapter 3, the world has been created by God, and it was good. And man and woman have been created by God, and it's all very good. And everything is the way that it's supposed to be until... Man and woman rebel in sin against God. And God comes into the garden in judgment. It's the first judgment on earth. And so he comes and he judges the serpent and he judges the woman. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 17 where he judges the man. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Brandon, I know you'll appreciate Eating the plants of the field is listed as part of the curse. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam's work is going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of work to get the earth to produce what used to be really easy. 
And not only that, you're going to have to contend with thorns and thistles along the way. So sins, sorrows, and thorns grow for now on the earth. But when the Lord judges the earth, all traces of sin will be removed. The new heavens and new earth will be free of sin and sorrows and the curse. What Watts is speaking of here is how Jesus reverses the curse. How he undoes the damage of sin. So then he, sa- he states it positively in the second half. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far will those blessings flow? As far as the curse is found. There's no part of the curse that is left unconquered by the blessings that Jesus brings. It's throughout the whole earth. So what are the blessings that flow from Christ's work? Let me just read these verses for you. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. One blessing, of course, is personal salvation for sinners. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ takes the curse on himself on the cross so that his blessings can flow to us in that we who are cursed by sin have the curse of sin taken away because he's paid the penalty for us. But the blessings that he brings are not just for individuals. It also encompasses the earth. And this is part of the whole story. I realized as I was studying this, I have a book on my shelf that is telling the story of the world in terms of the covenants of how God is redeeming both people and the world and the whole thing. And it's called Far As the Curse is Found. The book takes its title from Joy to the World because it's such a great expression of what Jesus is doing when he comes and accomplishes what he does on the cross and in his resurrection and ultimately in his second coming. So this blessing comes, it's redemption for the creation as well. Listen to these verses. 2 Peter 3.13 But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. New heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The curse gone. Or Romans 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, that's the curse, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The the creation itself will be set free from the curse. No more thorns infesting the ground. There's several places in Scripture we could turn to see this. I want to take you to just one place this morning. So turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 65. 
While you're turning there, I'll remind you of what we saw here recently. The book of Isaiah is divided in three parts, chapters 1 through 39, 40 to 55, and 56 to 66. And it all has to do with the exile, Israel or Judah particularly, being taken out of their land and sent into exile. So the first part, chapters 1 through 39, is a message to them before they're taken into exile, telling them, here's what your sin is and what's going to happen to you because of it. Chapters 40 to 55 is a message for while they're in exile, and it tells them of the servant, the suffering servant, who's going to come and accomplish their redemption so that they can be brought back out of exile. Then chapters 56 to 66 is a vision of what life will be like after exile when God establishes his kingdom. Now all of that and Judah being taken into exile is really ultimately a picture of what God is doing in the story of the world. Judah is like Adam and Eve in the garden. Because of your sin, you're going to be exiled out of the garden. Here's what's going to happen. And then the majority of scripture is that middle stage, while we are in exile, while we are now separated from God, the suffering servant is going to come and he's going to do what is necessary to bring you out of exile and reunite you with God. And then the last part is the new heavens and new earth or that, that kingdom that's coming. Maybe it's this earthly kingdom that then turns into new heavens and new earth, but it's that vision of the future for when God reigns as king. And so the whole thing serves as that kind of picture. Now, with that in mind, we're going to look at Isaiah 65, and I'm just going to read verses 17 through 25. Now, as I read it, do this. Picture the year 2020. It's coming to a close. It's been quite a year. I think you can see the effects of sin and sorrow and thorns in 2020. Sin has been on full display on the news every night. And sorrows as things are torn apart and as people die and all of those kinds of things. And the thorns infest the ground. Let's call that a virus. This creation is broken. Have that in mind as we read these verses, this vision of the future. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. 
They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, whether you take that as a vision of a kingdom here on earth or as a, a, as a description of the new heavens and new earth, either way, that's the future that we have to look forward to. When Christ returns as king in justice and righteousness, he's going to fix this place. There's going to be joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. As I thought about this, I couldn't help but think of the story that C.S. Lewis tells in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, for those of you that don't know the story, first of all, shame on you. But second of all, it's a story about these children who end up in the land of Narnia. It's an enchanted land. And as they go in there, uh, they find that the land is under a curse. It's always winter and never Christmas. That's a way of expressing things are bad and there's no hope, it seems, on the near horizon. And there's a witch who is in charge of things, and she's the one who has imposed this curse. But as the children come in, there are also these rumblings of, of the arrival of one who's going to change the situation, Aslan, the true king, the lion. And so as the story unfolds, eventually Aslan arrives. And in his arrival, the winter begins to thaw and spring begins to come out. But one of the things that is the centerpiece of the story is that Aslan goes and offers himself to the witch in place of a traitor who has uh, gone over to the evil side. And so in redeeming this traitor, Aslan offers himself in this traitor's place. And so Aslan is bound and he's mocked and he's laid out on the stone table. And so you have the stone table here where Aslan is laid out and he is killed on the stone table. And two of the children who are some of the main characters here are following him and they come to the stone table and they find this place where Aslan has died. But then Aslan comes back to life. And they determine that Aslan is not a ghost, but he's real. You can touch him. He's really come back to life. And Aslan is about to explain to them some of what's going on. And so one of the children asks a question. But what does it all mean, asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, says Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That's what happens in Narnia as Aslan offers himself 
the stone table cracks and death begins to work backwards and Aslan comes back to life and the, the snow thaws and spring returns as Aslan comes to reign. In Narnia, the rollback begins with Aslan's death at the stone table, but leading up to that is the anticipated arrival of Aslan that everyone's hearing the rumblings about and talking about. Well, in our world, the rollback of sin and all of its consequences begins with Christ's death on the cross. But Christ's anticipated arrival, His advent, is what leads up to this. The arrival of the King means that God's promise to reverse the curse is now beginning to come true. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Briefly, verse 4, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. He rules the world with truth and grace. He's the king who's coming to judge and he's going to do that perfectly. Perfect justice means truth. Justice is frustrated when truth is suppressed or distorted. You can see that today in what happens often in our court system. But perfect justice and truth would actually be devastating to us if the truth was known about me and perfect justice was given by God for what I have done, that would be devastating. And so he doesn't just rule the world with truth, he rules the world with truth and grace. In Christ we receive blessings that we don't deserve. He rules with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. The way that God deals with the nations demonstrates his righteousness, whether that's his glory in judgment or his glory in grace. And when God's love is demonstrated, the wonders of his love, in the incarnation, in the crucifixion, it causes wonder. It causes worship or making a joyful noise. So when Christ comes in judgment, his reign will be in truth and grace and righteousness and it will be glorious. You see, these Christmas hymns, again, have the big story in mind. They take the jewel of the incarnation and they display it for us in a setting that encompasses the whole story of the Bible. The Christmas story in and of itself doesn't mean anything if we don't understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so the best of the Christmas hymns set the jewel of the incarnation in this setting of the whole grand plan and story that God is accomplishing in this world. So joy to the world. Joy comes to the world in Christ. 
We are mired in sorrows and thorns that are brought on by our sins. But Jesus rescues us from our sins and their consequences. That should bring a response of joy. Joy from us, His people, and from His creation as the creation itself is redeemed. And Christmas is the beginning of the accomplishment of that plan. Would you pray with me? Lord, joy to the world. Joy comes in your arrival, both in your incarnation, your birth, because of what you came to do. But we recognize that your second coming will also bring joy. We have hope because you are returning as the king to bring justice and righteousness. And it will be glorious and it will be cause for wonder and worship and joy, both from your people and from the creation. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to be people who are seeking to make the blessings of your salvation flow as far as the curse is found. That we would be people who live out the gospel not just in our hearts, but all throughout our lives and in every area of society and culture. May we be people who live as citizens of heaven, servants of the King, who's returning in justice and righteousness. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.